0: Well, you know, I try to exercise regularly. Most often, I run. But on occasion, I opt for one of these biking classes at the local gym. These classes are a weird experience. They really are. You jump on an exercise bike, and you watch these screens in front of you. And they create the illusion that you're actually biking through some New England countryside or maybe down the California coast. When you go uphill, you shift into high gear, and it creates some resistance. It's called pushing. When you go downhill, you shift into a lower gear, which reduces the resistance. It's called spinning. Pushing works the legs. Spinning keeps up the cardio. It really makes for a good work. It's kind of weird, but it makes for a good workout. But here's what I've learned about riding a bike. It's all about shifting gears. And so is the Christian life. Under the law, you performed in high gear. There was pressure. You were pushing. You were working to earn your righteousness. But a Christian, a Christian is a person who shifts into the grace gear. The Christian life is about spinning, not pushing. The pressure is now off. You see, Jesus pushed His way up a hill called Calvary. Jesus paid the price. He did the work. Now we leave Calvary in faith. Now we go downhill. The cross provides its own momentum. Now it's all cardio. It's all about the heart. It's keeping our heart fixed toward Him. It's trusting Jesus with our heart. Both law and grace take effort, but of a different sort. Law is a grind, grace is a breeze. And the key to success is shifting gears from law to grace, from works to faith, from flesh to the Spirit. And that's what Paul discusses in Galatians chapters 3 and 4. We begin on an ominous note, chapter 3, verse 1. Paul begins, O foolish Galatians! How would you like a letter sent to you that began that way? Oh, foolish one. The Greek word translated foolish means empty-headed. Literally, air-headed. Paul is referring to the Galatians as spiritual space cadets. Oh, you airheads. Here are a few other translations of verse 1. The New English Bible renders it, you stupid Galatians. The Amplified Version puts it, Oh, you poor and silly and thoughtless and unreflecting and senseless Galatians. The Amplified always lives up to its name. My favorite rendering of this verse is from the Phillips translation. <laughs> you dear idiots. I love that. <laughs> this was not naivety. This was stupidity. Paul continues. Who has bewitched you? That you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. I mean, this was not a situation where the Galatians had been improperly taught. The sufficiency of the cross, the work of Christ, had been clearly portrayed. Faith in Jesus was all they needed to be right with God. Thus, why were they so confused? Well, Paul asks, who has bewitched you? He knows somebody has confused them. It's as if a legalist has come in and bewitched them or cast some kind of spell on them. Realize, legalism does have a seductive element to it. It strikes a chord in our fallen thinking. Everything around us says it's our performance that matters. We hear it from our parents when we're little. We hear it from teachers and then from coaches and then from our boss. In fact, just do it is not only the Nike slogan... It's the way the world goes. Just do it. The whole notion that we can do something to earn God's favor plays on our pride. Oh yeah, we like that. Yeah, we're good enough. It all plays on our pride. It bewitches us. Paul's message, on the other hand, was liberating. It wasn't just do it. It was the work is done and there's nothing you can add to it. The gospel of grace Instead of inflates our pride, it humbles us. It realizes that we have nothing with which we can buy or barter for this free gift. All we can do is believe. In verse 2 he asks, This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? I mean, the Holy Spirit is given to believers, not achievers. By faith we receive from God. He says, are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? The Galatians had got off to such a good start. By grace, through faith, the Spirit of God was living God's life in and through them. Joy and victory flowed out of their lives. Not because of elbow grease or their own extra effort. No, something supernatural had occurred in them. God had given them His Spirit. And yet they failed to shift gears. Rather than spinning in faith, they geared back under the law and they started pushing through their own efforts and trusting in their own performance. Perhaps you've done this. You know, some people want to be a muscle rather than a vessel. A muscle flexes and forces. A muscle is my strength on display. But a vessel is occupied by the Holy Spirit. A vessel is all about God's power, not mine. Hey, this is the difference between the flesh and the spirit. It's the difference between a muscle and a vessel. Realize the flesh is me. Not just the evil in me. But when the Bible talks about the flesh, it's talking about... Not just the evil, but my good works, my righteousness, my energy, my ingenuity. It's not just the evil in me, but it's anything in me. This is the flesh. After we're saved, we need to say goodbye to my. We need to stop walking in the flesh. We need to rely on the Spirit to cause us to grow and be fruitful. Under the law, we conform. It's all about our efforts. We fit the mold. We follow the formula. But under grace, the Holy Spirit transforms us. The Spirit changes us from the inside out. You see, from the law to Calvary, it's an uphill ride. Under the law, it's a lot of pushing. But after Calvary, after you've seen the cross, after you've bowed your knee to Jesus, it's all downhill. The power of what Jesus achieved causes us to pick up steam. It's no longer grinding now. It's coasting. The Spirit empowers us to walk. But to take advantage of the change in terrain, you've got to shift gears. Again, in business and in sports and in education, the emphasis is always on our performance. It's grit and grades and very little grace. That's what we get from this world. But that's not the way we function as Christians. It's now all about faith and grace in God's Spirit. Paul's argument is if you begin in the Spirit, don't try to make progress now through the flesh. There are two different ways of relating to God, and you as a Christian need to keep it in the grace gear. Paul asks another question in verse 4. He says, Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? I mean, when the Galatians received the grace of God, they fell under immediate attack by these law-loving Jews in the community. These new believers had paid a price to embrace God's grace. Now, if they capitulated to the pressure, if they reverted back to the law, their initial sacrifices would have been wasted. He says in verse 5, Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? He's asking these Galatians to go back in their mind. When Paul healed that lame man at the gate there in Lystra, did he chalk it up to his outstanding prayer life and to his impeccable lifestyle? Not at all. Paul credited the miracle to God's grace. We need to understand that all miracles, all healing from God, aren't doled out on the basis of merit. Some people receive a miracle not because they've been better than another person. It's because of God's grace. All God's gifts are through His grace. They don't go to the goodest. When God works a miracle, He does it by grace. If people play any part in it at all, we add the faith. Mark Twain said it best. Heaven goes by favor. If it went by merit, you would stay out and your dog would go in. Did you hear about Abraham wanting to upgrade his computer? Did you hear about this? Isaac said, Pop, I hate to burst your bubble, but you can't run a new operating system on your old hard drive. You just don't have enough good memory. But Abraham, that great man of faith, he was unfazed. He replied calmly, Don't worry, son. God will provide the ram. You know, when I recall Abraham, I'm tempted to think, in a day of breakthrough technology and computer chip wizardry, what could we possibly learn from a man who lived 4,000 years ago? And yet the answer to that question is plenty. Though the world has changed and though knowledge has increased, God stays the same. And the terms by which man relates to God are the same today as they were in the days of Abraham. Paul is about to prove it. Chapter 3, verse 6, quotes Genesis 15, verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. I love this. Long before God delivered the law to Moses. Long before he gave Moses the rules and the regulations. In fact, 17 years before Abraham himself was circumcised. God declared Abraham right in his sight. And why? It was only because he believed. He believed God. And it was accounted to him for righteousness. He believed in God's promise of salvation. This means that what God did in forgiving the Galatians wasn't anything new. Salvation had always come by grace through faith. Verse 8, in the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. The terms of God's covenant with Abraham are the same terms by which he saves today. Jews and Gentiles are both saved by faith. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Now Paul points out that the law was not some kind of spiritual smorgasbord. Sort of a Bible buffet. You didn't go through the law and pick and choose what you wanted to to, uh, obey. It wasn't just what was convenient for you. If you kept the law, you kept the whole enchilada. Live by any part of it and you were bound to the whole. He says, but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Here's the problem you can live by little pieces of the law, but nobody can live under the whole law and be obedient and be successful. Thus, why even bind yourself to it at all? He says, to the contrary, Those that are justified by the law in the sight of God, no one is justified by the law in the sight of God. No one can live up to its demands. That's why the just shall live by faith. If it were possible to live up to the law, why did Habakkuk now prescribe a different remedy? And here he quotes Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. It's interesting, this verse is quoted three times in the New Testament and each time the emphasis is on a different word. In Romans 1 verse 17, the focus is on the word just. We're made just through faith. We're made right with God or just by faith. In Hebrews 10 verse 38, the stress is on the word faith. In other words, we're we're made just when we continue in our faith. It's about faith. But here in Galatians, the thrust is on the word live. We're not just saved by faith, but now we live by faith. We stop trying to earn God's favor, and we rest in His grace. We learn to trust in His promises. We live our lives by faith, not works, by grace, not law, by the Spirit, not the flesh. Verse 12 tells us, Yet the law is not of faith, and the man who does them shall live by them. In other words, it's either law or faith. You live by either one or the other, either by toil or by trust. It's either or. You know, on a bike, you can't push and spin simultaneously. You're either in one gear or you're in the other. And the same is true in relationship to God. You either trust in your own works or you trust in Jesus' work. Verse 13 sums up Paul's case for grace. He says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, and here he quotes Deuteronomy 21 verse 23, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. According to the law, the worst disgrace was to die on a tree. And it was on a dead tree at Calvary, a piece of wood, the cross, that Jesus atoned for the disgrace that we had suffered, that our sin had earned in order to bring us God's grace. And in doing so, he ensured that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. We receive all of the blessings of Abraham. We receive membership in God's family, not by law, but by faith. Even the blessings of the Spirit are imparted to us by faith. Now the rest of chapter 3 is a commentary on God's covenant with Abraham. Have you ever heard the phrase, the expression, cut a deal? You ever heard that expression, cut a deal? I'll bet you don't know its origin. You see, in ancient times, when covenants were sealed, animals were sacrificed. And these animals were cut in cross sections from head to rear. The pieces were then aligned to form a corridor. And then both parties, both parties of the contract, would walk together through the corridor, through the animal parts. It was their way of committing to their end of the deal. After God promised to bless Abraham, Abraham prepared to finalize this covenant. He had entered into a contract with God. He was going to seal it as he would any contract that he had entered into. And so he cut the animals. He sacrificed them. He formed the corridor. He waited all day. In fact, he shooed away the vultures all day. And he waited on God to appear and ratify the covenant with him. Abraham was almost about to doze off. He had almost fallen asleep over under the tree when suddenly God appeared. He appeared in the form of a burning torch and a smoking oven. The cloud and the fire. And interesting, God walked through the carcasses all by himself. All Abraham did was wake up and believe. You see, this wasn't a tag team effort. The sealing of this covenant wasn't a joint venture. This wasn't God's part and Abraham's part. No, God walked through the corridor all by himself. And in doing so, he said, this is my work and my work alone. All Abraham did was to wake up and believe. And 4,000 years later, this is still the way that God relates to His people. Jesus has accomplished all the work for us. He's done the work all by Himself. Our only part is to look on and believe. It's simple faith by which we enter God's family and earn God's blessings. Well, Paul begins to draw lessons from this Abrahamic covenant in verse 15. He says, brethren, I speak in the manner of men. Though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. In essence, if people take their promises seriously, how much more will God be faithful to the covenant that he's made? He says, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Christ. Now here's a lesson on reading the Bible carefully. For it's interesting, Paul sees a huge theological meaning in the letter S, in one S. The covenant that God made with Abraham and his family wasn't to his seeds, plural, but to his seed, singular. The ultimate heir of the covenant wasn't the nation, The seeds that would come from Abraham's loins. But it was to a single descendant, a seed, that being Jesus. You see, the Jews thought that they were God's salvation to the world. That's how they saw themselves. But it wasn't the Jews. It was a Jew that was God's salvation to the world. It was His seed, Jesus Christ. Realize the world's philosophy is pluralism. But God is into singularism. Our hope in salvation is singular. It's found in one person. The only way is Jesus. And then Paul says, in this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. This faith, grace, covenant, that God made with Abraham, was firmly entrenched long before the law came along. The Mosaic law was never intended to uproot and take the place of grace, not even for a brief season. He says, For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. Again, law and grace, works and faith are mutually exclusive. You can't ride in the same gear at the same time. In fact, you wonder, why in the world did God even institute the law? Well, Paul anticipates that question in verse 19. He says, what purpose then does the law serve? And here's his answer. It was added because of transgressions. You see, the law exposed our sin. If it had not been for the law, we wouldn't have known the depth and extent of our sin. It's kind of like when you're driving down the freeway. You don't really know that you're breaking the limit unless you see the signpost on the side of the road. Well, the law was the signpost. It exposed our sin. It also exposed our need for a Savior. All of those sacrifices was saying to God's people that, hey, it takes blood to atone for sin. Blood has to be shed for you to be forgiven. And so all of those sacrifices that the law required was pointing us to a savior. The law exposed our sin and our need for a Savior. But it was never intended to make us right with God. Never. In fact, the law was needed only, notice, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. The law pointed us to the Savior. But once Jesus came, the law was no longer necessary. It became obsolete. It had fulfilled its purpose. Recently, I ran across a collection of laws that are still on the legal dockets and yet with the passing of time and the changing of culture these laws have basically become obsolete. Here's a sampling. Did you know that in San Jose, California sleeping in your neighbor's outhouse without permission is a violation of the law? I'm sure you needed to know that. It's also illegal to eat peanuts in church in Massachusetts. That's a law on the books. Here in Atlanta, smelly persons are not allowed on streetcars. Remember that tomorrow on your way to work. And singing out of tune in North Carolina is absolutely prohibited. Perhaps the North Carolina statute is the only one that still has any validity. My point, though, is it's possible to have laws on the books that have become irrelevant and unnecessary. And this is what Paul is saying about the law of Moses. After the work of Jesus, the law became obsolete. The commandments are still on the books, granted. But when you embrace the Savior, they're no longer necessary. They've already accomplished their purpose. Verse 19 makes another point about the Jewish law. He says, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. In other words, the law came second hand. It came from God to Moses by certain angels, by go-betweens. You know, it's like that, you know, one guy whispers in one ear and the other guy whispers in another ear and the other guy. I don't know if it happened quite like that. But here he's saying it came by mediators. It wasn't handed straight from God to Moses. It came to him through a succession of angels. In contrast, verse 20, now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. You see, the law leaned on mediators. But recall the covenant with Abraham? When God walked through the animal parts, He did so by Himself, Himself personally. There were no mediators. There were no go-betweens. There were no proxies or representatives. No God's promise. Grace and faith is always firsthand. God puts His stamp of approval on it. It puts us in personal touch with God. Grace and faith are better than law and works. Verse 21, is the law then against the promises of God? Well, certainly not. I mean, the law did serve a purpose. God did have a good purpose for the law. But making us right with God was never its objective. He says, for if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. Any way that we could have been made righteous that wouldn't have required Jesus to come and die, that would have been good. But obviously there was no other way. If the law could have saved us, Jesus would have never had to come and die in our place. But the Scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The law exposed our sin and our inability to keep it, only proved our need for a Savior. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. You see, the law kept our nose clean, taught us right from wrong. It kept us out of trouble until Jesus came to save us and change us and give us a new heart. He says, therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. The law was a tutor. It schooled us on our sin and on our need for a Savior. He says, but after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Think of it this way. The law was like a nanny that was there to help raise God's kids. But when the kids come of age, you fire the nanny. You don't need a nanny anymore for adults. The spiritually mature, the true believers, they no longer need to be told what's right. It now becomes their utmost desire. God puts it into our hearts. He writes it on our hearts. Now that we know Jesus, our hearts have changed. I no longer have to obey God. Now I want to obey Him. Now I get to obey Him. A Christian's want-tos change. And that's why we no longer need the tutor. God has done a work in our hearts. He's converted us. He's made us His sons. And now He can trust us to follow Him. He says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. I mean, the Savior's nature beats in my breast as loudly as my own heart. I am a miracle of God's grace. And you are too if you've trusted in Jesus. How can we add to anything He's already done. How can we add to that miracle? We need to rely on Jesus' finished work. We need to rely on what the Spirit has done in our hearts, not what we can do for God. Which leads to a truth. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. I mean, since salvation is no longer based on our achievements... The categories that used to define us have disappeared. They're now gone. We're all one in Christ. Because we all come the same way, by grace, through faith. All that distinguishes us now is whether we're in Christ or whether we're apart from Christ. The whole world could be summed up into two categories. Those that are in Christ and those that are not. The saints and the ain'ts. That's the whole world right there. There's only meaningful distinctions left. Verse 29. "And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs, according to the promise. How wonderful. Membership in Abraham's family doesn't just boil down to a Jewish pedigree. Did you know you can leapfrog over Old Testament requirements? over all the things that made a person Jewish, you can leapfrog over all of that by embracing the heir of Abraham, Jesus Christ. By embracing Christ, you can become a son of God in full and in right and in perfect standing. God accepts us now by faith through God's grace. Now, the first seven verses of chapter 4 continue with this analogy of the law as a tutor or as a nanny. In the Roman world, before a child came of age, he was under the care of a nanny. Actually, not a nanny as you think about it, but a um, um, sort of like a, a, a mentor, a male nanny. Think of it as a male Mary Poppins. How about that? But the child was under the caretaker, was under a caretaker, and this caretaker was in charge of the child's development. The son was heir to the family's th- fortune, but of course, in his younger years, I mean, a kid's just a kid, and so you you treat a you treat a kid differently than the potentially he's the owner, but you don't treat him as the owner. Not when he's a kid. I mean, you don't hand him the keys to the, to the store. He'll go in and he'll eat all the profits, or he'll. Blow all the bubble gum. or he'll, he'll do whatever crazy thing and waste away you know, what's been given to him. So when, the child, when he's a child, you have to tutor him. You have to raise him. And that's where this mentor came in. Until he developed some maturity, the son couldn't be trusted to own the company. In other words, he had to learn the ropes before he got the reins. This is the background leading into Galatians chapter 4. Now, I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. I mean, a wise dad expects a son to work in the family business before he takes over. Every employer should first be an employee. Good idea, right? I mean, employees are graded on results. They're groomed by rituals. They're guided by regulations. And they're grounded from ruling until they learn these lessons. And this is good training. This is what the law did for us. It graded our results. It groomed us through the various Jewish rituals. It guided us through the regulations. But it kept us from really being a part. But after the son becomes an owner, there's no need any longer for him to be graded, and for him to be groomed, and for him to be guided guided and grounded. No. Now, as the owner, it's up to him to function according to his wisdom and according to his instincts. You see, all this applies to our life under the law. The law trained us as if we were hired hands. Until we came to Christ, and once we came to Christ, we became co-owners in the business. We became heirs of Abraham and heirs of the Father. Now, the law has been written on our hearts. and Now it's up to us to live by God's instincts and by the love He's put in our heart and to be guided by His Holy Spirit. No longer by the law, but by the Spirit. Paul says in verse 3, Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. He's saying the law was a nanny religion. The law was like the ABCs of morality and ethics. The word elements here means basics. Legalism covered a version of right and wrong. But here's Paul's point. Legalism, law, is for babies. Did you know that? Legalism is for babies. Babies. The law was like sucking on a pacifier. Preset standards, laws were like playpins. Establishing boundaries are always easier than walking by faith and living by love. I mean, people like to be told what to do rather than do the right thing. You know, under the law, you're told what to do. But in Christ, He expects you to do the right thing. To live out the Spirit of God working in your heart. Religious formulas are just that. They're formula compared to the meat of God's Word. Legalism is for babies. The false teachers who told these believers that keeping the law was the path of true enlightenment, they were deceivers. Performance-based religion is kid stuff. It's look-at-me religion. Like a little kid. Look at me, Daddy. It's look at what I've done. Rather than look to Jesus and look to what He's done. The law is infantile and juvenile. It's only through grace and faith that we grow up spiritually. For a time, God kept mankind under the law. Verse 4, But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Notice, in the fullness of time, or when history reached a crescendo, when God's plan crested, at that precise moment, God sent forth His Son. The Roman peace and the Jewish prophecies and God's sovereignty all came together to make it just the right time. Jesus was born. He was born under the law. He was required as a Jew to meet its standards and live up to its demands. And He alone fulfilled all of the righteousness required by the law. He gained His freedom from the law for having obeyed it. And therefore, He earned the position to free the rest of us. And Jesus is now in the business of adopting lost sinners as His sons. He's going to talk about adoption, but before we get into it, I think it's wonderful whenever someone comes up and says, man, I've been adopted. You know, every adopted child has one great blessing that other kids don't have. For if you're adopted, come what may, you always know that you were wanted. You always do. If you were adopted, that means you were wanted. An adopted child is no accident. That means that in adopting you, Jesus loves you, and that He wanted you. He says, and because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. You know, he says that we've received the adoption as sons. Understand God's adoptions are legal. He redeems us. He satisfies our debts. He works out the paperwork in heaven. Trust me. He has legal custody of you if you're his adopted son. But his adoptions are not just on paper, understand. There's more, there's more to a divine adoption. For here we're told he puts his spirit within you. When he adopts you, he doesn't just sign the papers, but he puts his spirit in you. Thus the instinctive cry of your heart becomes Abba or Daddy suddenly it becomes your natural tendency to want to do His will and love His people and represent Him to the world. When He puts His Spirit within you, it creates a natural intimacy between you and Him. I guess you could call it a supernatural intimacy. Verse 7, Therefore you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. The law and legalism is for slaves and hired hands and hourly workers. But in Christ, we have become heirs. As sons, you've become a co owner in the family business, in God's business, so to speak. I mean, wait till you get to heaven. It is going to blow your mind to see the shingle over the doorway which reads, God and sons. <laughs> That's another name for heaven. God and sons. You're one of the sons. It reminds me of a cartoon, an angel. He's taking some new arrivals on a tour of heaven. And there's a banner overhead that reads, Welcome Stockholders. As kids, we're stockholders in heaven. We're heirs of all God's blessing. And this is why in Christ, rules are no longer the issue. Jesus knows you're on His team now as co-owner in the company. It's to your advantage to work with Him, not against Him. A son has the same nature and incentives as his dad. Thus, he doesn't need to keep you under the law. He can set you free to be his son. It's been said, religion, or keeping the law, you might say, religion is like a wooden leg. There's neither life nor warmth in it. And although it helps a person to hobble along, It never becomes a part of them. It has to be strapped on every morning. Keeping the law is chore after chore, more after more. The law is a load, man, if you've ever lived under it. Whereas Christianity is a lift. Oh, it's a lift. It's no longer up to me. In Christ, I now have a partner, and His name is the Holy Spirit, and He lives in my heart to impart His power and help to me. In Christ, we are forgiven and redeemed and adopted and made co-heirs in Christ. The Spirit puts us on intimate terms with God. And after all of that, we rise to a far greater level of maturity than we could ever achieve under the law. For all eternity, it's going to be God and sons. And you're one of His sons. Verse 8, But then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. But now, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? I mean, here's the betrayal that had happened in Galatia. Some of the Galatians were previously pagans. They served false gods and idols. Others were Jews who were caught up in legalism. But both religions chained them to impossible codes and laborious ceremonies. The grace of God, in contrast, was like a breath of fresh air. Like a cup of cold water on a hot day. Why return to the beggarlies? I mean, to the basic things after you've walked in Christ Jesus. After you've been to the mountaintop of grace and felt that rarefied air. Why would you sink back into the fog of legalism? Verse 10, you observe days and months and seasons and years. They got caught up in holy days. You know, they thought that a holy God could be satisfied by filling up their calendar with appointments. They set aside all kinds of feasts and festivals and holy days as if God is pleased with setting aside days. No, He's not. It's about faith, not festivals and feast days. Paul writes, I am afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. I mean, if they continue down this path under legalism, all that they've received can be negated. We'll see this in chapter 5. Legalism is not a friend of righteousness. Guys, you need to understand that legalism is not benign, it's not harmless. You know, it's amazing to me. Most pastors, most churches, they're quick to embrace the guy who is tough on sin. The legalist. They're quick to embrace him. Now, the guy who carries his freedom too far. Oh no, we're going to discipline that guy. But the legalist, he's the one that's tolerated. Oh, he may be a little overzealous, but he's still on our side. No, he's not. That's a miscalculation. The legalist is the guy that you need to be more aware of. That poses the greatest danger to the life and health of the church. Because he's the one that's going to rob us of God's grace. I've heard it put, the more religious a man becomes, the further from God he gets. That's true. The more legalistic he gets, the more he's trusting in himself rather than in God. Paul worries about the legalism of the Galatians unraveling everything that grace has woven. His work among them will be in vain if they go too far down this road. Verse 12. Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. Paul laid aside the Jewish legalism with which he was so familiar, in which he was raised, in order to enjoy his freedom in Christ. He lived like a Gentile Christian, even though he was a Jew. Paul, he worshipped on Sundays. He didn't go to the synagogue. He worshipped with the Gentile believers on Sunday. And he mowed his grass on the Sabbath. And he ate a lot of bacon at the men's prayer meeting. This was Paul. He enjoyed his liberty in Christ. And he's asking Galatians to now mimic his example. In verse 13, Paul begins a new thought. He says, you know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. He's going to talk about his relationship with the Galatians now. And he talks about when Paul and Barnabas first landed in Pamphylia on the Turkish coast. He didn't stay long, and it's surprising, for Pamphylia is such a scenic spot. I mean, it's like going to Hawaii. Pamphylia is a vacation area, it's in an area known as the Turkish Riviera. Give you an idea of what Pamphylia is like? Beautiful. I'm sure he was tempted to stay there. But something moved him upwards. Something moved him inland. He left the tropical coast of Pamphylia for the drier mountains of Galatia. And what motivated him to do that? He tells us it was a physical infirmity. And he recalls how the Galatians received him once he arrived. He says, my trial which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. I mean, the Galatians held Paul in such high esteem. They treated him as a messenger of God. His illness no way lessened their respect of him. He says, what then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Now see, here's how much they loved Paul in the beginning. They would have plucked out their own eyes and they would have given them to the apostle if it were possible. And here we get a clue as to the nature of Paul's infirmity or his sickness. Paul probably suffered from some sort of infectious eye disease. Some folks believe that Paul suffered something like a perpetual pink eye. He had this reoccurring... Uh, eye problem this may have been what he wrote about in second corinthians chapter 12 as his thorn in the flesh the warm humid tropical climate there on the coast caused a flare-up of his condition and caused him to want to move to the cooler drier mountains of galatia that's what brought him to these people in the first place and paul is remembering how they received him sacrificially They were loyal to him. They loved him so much so that they would have plucked out their eyes and given them to him if it had been possible. And yet, someone had turned these Galatians against Paul. What happened? Why Why did they lose respect for him? Why have they opposed him now in his pursuit of grace? He says in verse 16, Have I therefore become your enemy? Because I tell you the truth? I mean, he's referring to the legalists, the rabbinical sympathizers, the Judaizers. These are the ones that had turned their opinion against Paul. He says, they zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you, but they may be zealous, that you may be zealous for them. These false teachers, they pampered rather than pastored. They were just out to gain a following. Paul told these believers the truth. They told them the truth. Paul told them the truth each week. But the false teachers, they told them what they wanted to hear. They just wanted to gain a following. The Judaizers were just into how many people they could get to follow them on Twitter. That's all they cared about. But it is good to be zealous in a good thing always. And not only when I am present with you. That's kind of a real nice... Subtle rebuke. The Galatians had stood up for God's grace when Paul was around, but once he left town, they dropped their guard. And now he rebukes them. They need to be more consistent. Paul reveals his intentions for them in verse 19. He says, My little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. I love this. This is Paul's heart, his goal for the Galatians. It wasn't what they could do for him that mattered. No, he cared about them. Paul had a passion to do more for these Christians than just plant the initial seed in their hearts. He wanted to see every new believer reach maturity and live out the character of Christ. He says that he labored you know, as if he were giving birth for these, for these Galatians. His soul travailed. He cramped up with concern to see these believers grow. I I hope you find a pastor that has this kind of heart for you. This is how spiritual leaders should feel about their people. That that literally, they labor until Christ is formed in you. That's my desire for you. Not just that you get saved. That's part of it. That's the first step. But I want to see Christ formed in you. I want to see you living out the example of Christ and being His representative in this world. That's my desire for you. and Paul's desire for the Galatians. Verse 20, I would like to present with you now and to change my tone for I have doubts about you. Oh my. He cares about what he's hearing from these Galatians. He's worried about them. He has doubts about them. You don't want your pastor to have doubts about you. Don't tell Paul legalism isn't lethal to faith. He knows that it is. And that's why he's so worried about the Galatians. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? And here he's about to use an Old Testament story to teach a New Testament lesson. He says, for it is written that Abraham had two sons... The one by a bond woman, that would be Hagar. And the other by a free woman, that would be Sarah. Sarah was that gal who bought bikinis with her social security check. You remember her? She was the ageless knockout. But this arrangement turned sour. It turned into a severe case of sibling rivalry, spearheaded by two jealous mothers. He says, but he... Who was of the bondwoman, was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise. You remember, God promised Abraham and Sarah a son. Now at 65 years old, Sarah must have, see, must have thought that this was a stretch. This was a far-fetched promise. And then when nothing happened for the next 25 years, and yet God still repeated the promise, I mean, Sarah just laughed. It was shortly thereafter that God got the last laugh. Amazingly, at the age of 90 years old, God fulfilled His promise to Sarah and gave her a son. She named him Isaac, which incidentally means laughter. But that's only one half of the story. Now to the other half. In her darkest days of barrenness, Sarah had grown weary of it all. Of checking her temperature and counting the days on the calendar and rushing home from parties to do the deed because she might be ovulating and all the things that she was going through. You see, the ancients had a shortcut around all of this stuff, all of this family planning. They had a shortcut. You could just recruit a surrogate mom. You could arrange the night, send the servants home early, you know, put some candles in the tent, let the husband have his jollies one night. And then the baby that resulted would go to the wife who had tolerated it all. And that's how Hagar gave birth to her son, Ishmael. Isaac was the son of the promise. Ishmael was the son of the flesh. And here's how Paul tells the story. Sarah had the son of the promise. Isaac was the miracle baby. He was God's work from start to finish. He came through promise, just like our salvation comes to us, through grace from start to finish. Whereas Ishmael was born according to the flesh. And remember, flesh is what? It's me. Flesh is me. It's my efforts, my ingenuity, my ability. Just like our efforts under the law, under legalism. Now here's where the plot thickens, verse 24. He says, which things are symbolic? This tale of two sons actually has spiritual implications. And Paul is going to use this story in an analogy. He says, for these are the two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. Hagar represents the legal code, the law, given to Moses on Mount Sinai. This was later associated with another mountain, Mount Moriah, or the Temple Mount, which was in the heart of Jerusalem. This was where Judaism, this became its headquarters. The whole system of relating to God that Paul opposed in Galatia. Righteousness that depends on law and works and flesh. That system that related to Mount Sinai and related to Jerusalem. The Temple Mount was epitomized in Hagar and Ishmael. You with me so far? Yet to the contrary, Paul says, but the Jerusalem above is free which is the mother of us all. The Jerusalem above, the new Jerusalem, is heaven. We're going to talk about it next Sunday morning. This is where the power originated that opened Sarah's womb. And it's also the source of our salvation that ends our spiritual barrenness. Heaven bestows favor freely. He says, from Jerusalem, which is free. Heaven bestows favor freely by grace through faith in the power of the Holy Spirit, which is exactly how we relate to God under the new covenant. So, Hagar in earthly Jerusalem represent the law, whereas Sarah and the new Jerusalem, or heaven, represent grace. Verse 27, For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Here he quotes Isaiah 54 verse 1. It speaks of two covenants as two women. And it predicts that the covenant that starts out barren will produce many more children than the covenant that starts out fertile. Kind of what happened to my wife. Kathy was having a hard time. We had a hard time having kids. For two years we tried. Did the temperature thing and all all that stuff. And and we tried for two years. And then all of a sudden, Zach came. And then the woman couldn't stop. She went from barren Karen to fertile myrtle. We had four kids. And that's what he's saying here. This woman who starts out barren, she's going to end up fertile. She's going to have many more kids than the woman who starts out, you know, fertile. Fertile. Which means, in the end, the Jerusalem above, or the new covenant, will produce many more offspring for God than the Jerusalem below, which is the law. Everybody following it? Following Paul's analogy? In other words, grace will prove more fruitful than law. And then in verse 28, Paul explains his analogy. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, even so it is now. You see, Abraham's foray in the flesh resulted in friction at home. Hagar started needling Sarah constantly. Hagar and Ishmael were a burr under Sarah's saddle. I mean, every time they climbed into the minivan together, old Hagar assaulted Sarah with another little dig or some slight against Isaac. How much better Ishmael's grades were than Isaac's grades or Ishmael pitched in the Little League game. I think, what, Isaac batted ninth and played right field, didn't he? Stuff like that. And, and, you know, finally, Sarah, she had about all that she could take. Verse 30, here Paul quotes Genesis chapter 21 and Sarah's ultimatum. She set the old boy down one day and she said, nevertheless, what does the Scripture say? She said, cast out the bondwoman and her son. You need to get rid of that woman, Abraham. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. I've had it with her. You need to get rid of her. These two women... We're going to be in conflict as long as they live together. That's why Honey Hagar had to go. And the same is true for these two ways of relating to God. You can't have both, they are not compatible. They are going to be in friction and they're going to be fighting against each other constantly. It's either grace or law, it's either faith or works. It's either walk in the Spirit or walk under the law. It's one or the other. Paul concludes, So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. And we too have to choose. Either you're a new covenant person who walks by faith and enjoys God's grace, or you're wedded to the law and you depend on yourself. It's one or the other. We all need to shift some gears and shift from law to grace.